You're just gonna stay angry at God for the rest of your Whether it's popular or not, we're seeking out what pleases the Lord. Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of the UPC Later podcast and part two of Keaton's story. Um, I know how scary and how overwhelming it can be to share your story. So first of all, I want to say thank you to everybody who's so willing to come on here to share um, your experiences with everybody listening. And thank you to the listeners for giving our guest a safe space to speak. If you are thinking to yourself, hmm, I want to share, but I don't want to talk. Maybe your story has some details that we need to really protect and you don't want anybody to hear your voice. I'm thinking about getting on the Instagram page and starting to post there um, some of your stories in different slides to give you the opportunity. We'll do it through like a text. Um, you can do it in email. We're going to figure out how to do it, but I just wanted to let you know that if you want to share, but you don't want to talk, come to me. We're going to get it together um, and be able to get everybody's story shared one way or the other. So without any further delay, let's get to part two of Keaton's story. Let's go. All right, friends, we are back with our guest, Keaton, who has shared um, an incredible part one of his story. So he is back for part two, and he is going to walk us through another um, breathing exercise, which I loved the first one. So welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to take it from here. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, you know, these these stories are, are tough for me to talk about, and they... Uh, I, I know that they are difficult for so many people to hear. Um, so I, it's important for me to take a moment and to just breathe and kind of transition here and be centered and be open. Um, so if you're open to it, you're welcome to join me. Um, let's do box breathing again, which is the same exercise we did last time. Uh, I'm going to use a metronome this time to just kind of help us, but we'll do four bars. So count to four as you breathe in through your nose. Count to four as you just hold that breath. Count to four as you exhale out of your mouth, get all of that air out. And then count to four again as you just hold. And we'll do that two times through. So I'll get us started here. Okay. So at your own pace, ready? In. Hold. Exhale. Hold that, and we'll do that one more time. Thank you so much for doing that with me. Of course, yeah. Thank you for um, walking us through that. So last time uh, we left off, we were talking about your experience within high school, how you had decided at around age 16, you were going to go to Bible college. Um, it was sort of spoken to you by the leadership at the time that that was the direction that your life was taking. So talk to me about that. Let's talk about Bible college. Yeah, let's do it. Um, yeah. So I think it's helpful to just do a, a full recap on, on why I went to Bible college. So yeah, absolutely. it was very much taught at, at an early age that, ministry was the highest calling for your life. Um, and I, I truly believed that. And personally, I felt that calling since I was 12. 
like you said, that was reaffirmed by every leader in my life, you know, youth pastors, pastors, evangelists, leaders, um, at the time, what we would, what we would have called prophecies. Uh, and also at the same time, music was where I was finding the most validation. So by the time I was 18, I was spending my entire summers at youth camps and national events and playing at rallies and, and all of these things. Um, I also had just a lot of questions. So in the last episode, we talked about speaking in tongues. That was a big question for me. Uh, and I had more. But fundamentally, I, I really did believe that I was the problem here, that um, you know, I, I was taught ultimate truth. That's what I'd been told my whole life. And I just hadn't found the understanding yet. I had questions. I, I really believed the answers existed. Uh, so I just needed to, to seek them. So that's why I decided Bible college was the next best step for me. I could seek answers. I could continue to become better in music ministry. And I could sort of develop uh, what I wanted to ultimately be, become. A... So it. I ended up in, yeah, I ended up enrolling uh, as a music ministry major at what at the time was called Gateway College of Evangelism. Um, okay. And I did so because that school is in St. Louis. And um, that's, it's, it's very close to the headquarters of the, of the organization of the church. And that meant that this particular school was full of teachers who were like the leaders of the organization, like the people that, that wrote the textbooks. So if my goal was to learn, they really had a leg up. Uh, so that's why. Yeah. Okay. Um, and how was your experience, you know, getting there and how was the first year or so? Like what, what all did you experience where your answer or questions answered? Did you feel like you got some things accomplished? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I wasn't there a very long time and which is very common for Bible college. Um, but when I was there, the average graduating class was around 20 people or less. Um, you know, oh, wow. people go to Bible college, they get married, they take jobs at churches, which is what I did. I ended up taking a job at a church um, or they just, you know, drop out. So okay, wasn't there a long time, but starting from the very beginning, the, the first mandatory class that we were taught was a, a oneness Pentecostal history. You know, why we believed what we believed, why what we believed was the ultimate truth and why other people uh, did not have the ultimate truth. And this was a this was a mandatory class. It didn't matter if you were in music or um, if you were studying theology, you had to take this class. Um, and the origin story that was taught in this class about our belief system would, would sort of have you believe that the founders of the early Pentecostal revivals, so people like Charles Parham, who started the Topeka revival, and William Seymour, who started the Azusa Street revival, were ideological equals with the later founders of oneness Pentecostalism. So people like G.T. Haywood, or Howard Goss, or A.D. Urshan. And historically speaking, this, this is just not true. Um, both Charles Parham and William Seymour, the early Pentecostal pioneers, were devout Trinitarians. Um, they did not baptize in Jesus' name. They openly baptized in the traditional Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a really important point to just talk about at the beginning, because the UPCI teaches very explicitly that in order to achieve salvation, everyone has to follow the explicit plan from Acts 2.38, right? You have, yeah. to, be, you have to repent, 
you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus explicitly, not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to speak it in tongues. And without those three, you, you're not going to make it to heaven. Um, so even at like a cursory glance, by the UPCI's own definition of salvation, no one from the Azusa Street Revival, no one from Topeka, no one from any of these early Pentecostal movements would have made it to heaven. That's really interesting. Pretty wild, right? Um, yeah. I mean, because they will even tell you that if you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you have to be rebaptized because the first one didn't mm-hmm. count. Which is very new because even A.D. Urshan, who the school is now named after, started out as a Trinitarian and openly believed that you did not need to be rebaptized. And that somehow changed along the way. <laughs> as, it, as it does, right? Um, I actually love to share a bit, a bit more of what was left out of Pentecostal history. Um, and all of this is easily verifiable. I, I have um, tons of references I would love to give you for the show notes for anyone who wants to continue to study this. But it's a pretty fascinating story, the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. So it starts with this man named Charles Parham, who I mentioned. Uh, and he starts the Topeka, Kansas revival in the year 1901. He is publicly credited as the first person to usher in a modern day baptism as evidenced by speaking in tongues. Um, the UPCI you know, links back to this, uh, ALJC, the oneness groups, but also mainstream Pentecostalism all link themselves back to Charles Parham. And history writes of this man as just a very demanding authoritarian leader. In fact, throughout the, the course of his ministry, he ends up losing a lot of his followers because of his rhetoric. Um, and we were taught about these early revivals that, you know, speaking in tongues had happened throughout history, that it started on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts and speaking in tongues existed ever since then. But what's fascinating is Charles Parham himself says that this isn't true. He does a ton of interviews at the time. Um, and he openly says that this is a new thing in history, right? So I'm gonna read an excerpt from um, one of those interviews in 1901. This is the year that Parham starts the Pentecostal movement. This was published by the Hawaiian Gazette. Okay. The article says, Parham's plan is to send persons who have been blessed with the gift of tongues, a gift which he says, referencing Charles Parham, no others have ever had conferred on them since apostolic times. So like, just to be really clear, there is no historical documentation for speaking in tongues before the late 1800s. And then and the story is that what they're, that what they're right. teaching you when you're at Bible college or that they're, I mean, telling actually, yeah. they're telling you that, oh, people were speaking in tongues before 1901. Um, it just wasn't recorded. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, at, at Bible college and unfortunately at most, if not all, oneness Pentecostal churches. It, it's taught that tongues existed throughout history, um, which we just have no actual documentation to prove that, that that actually happened. But the story goes on to actually be pretty fascinating. So one of Charles uh, Parham's followers is a man named William J. Seymour, and he actually starts his own revival. This is the Azusa Street Revival, which I'm sure we've all, we all heard of um, in church. And what we didn't learn, though, is that Charles Parham and William J. Seymour actually have this really bitter rivalry. And the rivalry is driven by Charles Parham's just absolute, absolute racism. Um, William Seymour was a black man. He was born to emancipated slaves in Louisiana. 
And in fact, when Seymour was studying under Charles Parham at the Topeka revival, he had to sit in the hall because Charles Parham would not allow any non-white followers to sit in the main room. Uh, he made anyone who was not white sit and listen from the hallway, uh, which is, you know, kind of, it's disgusting. Um, and in fact, Charles Parham publicly comments on the Azusa Street Revival, and he does so in his own paper, which is called The Apostolic Faith, that was distributed through his Bible school. But he also does this in, in, in the public forum. He comments in public newspa newspapers quite a bit. Um, some of the things that Charles Parham, the founder of Pentecostalism, says about Azusa uh, are pretty shocking. Now, he says in the press that the Azusa Street Revival is, quote, nothing more than a religious orgy. He says, God is, stick, is sick at his stomach when he looks at this. And in fact, most of the commentary Charles Parham gives is just so overtly racist and cruel that I'm, I won't repeat it here. Um, okay. But it's all, this is all public commentary. Um, and this feud between the two Pentecostal founders really deepens in October of 1906, when Charles Parham is originally invited to speak at the Azusa revival, and then uninvited. But he shows up anyway, and he ends up taking the stage by force. And he, through his very authoritarian brand of leadership, convinces a large group of people to leave the Azusa revival and to come with him. And then later that same year, Charles Parham and another man uh, named J.J. Jordan are actually arrested. And the, the charge at the time is an unnatural offense involving a young boy, which is um, a term for sodomy at the time. So William this Seymour- This is the founder, like, but this is the this founder. This is the founder of the Pentecostal church. And again, all public knowledge. Uh, William J. Seymour ends up being opportunistic at this moment, takes back a large group of Parham's followers. Parham's ministry is never really the same after this. And then William J. Seymour moves the whole Pentecostal movement, uh, the Azusa revival, to Chicago. And this really is the beginning of the Pentecostal church. Uh, this is how the whole thing starts. Wow. Yeah. That's a really messy... Um origin story for what people are you know yeah. holding on to today but that's not taught in yeah, the, in, in, sure. the, in the Bible college you attended they left those parts out yeah well you know I mean I think there's a pretty clear pattern of um, leaving out the inconvenient truths that don't you know confirm what what we want like we talked about confirmation bias in the last episode it's just it's it's natural it's something that we all do um, but it, it is something that takes, you know, accountability to, to counteract. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, um, I had a lot of questions, right? Like uh, I mentioned in that last episode that I was questioning speaking in tongues. This was a big one for me. I talked about, you know, how tongues impacted my developing psychology as a child and how I was at this point kind of looking at it with doubt. And I was very conflicted about this. And before Bible college, I really started studying and taking studying seriously. And I learned that, you know, in the book of Acts chapter one, on the day of Pentecost, tongues are just clearly recognizable languages. The passage says the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And in the Pentecostal church I grew up in and all the churches that I traveled and played guitar at, uh, no one spoke in actual languages, right? And then I, I kept studying and I, I realized that in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives very strict rules about how tongues are supposed to show up in the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone speaks in a tongue, there should be two or three at the most, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in church. So I'm studying and I'm seeing real languages, two or three at most, one at a time. This is, you know, this is the opposite of, of what I grew up around. This is the opposite of what I'm seeing in church. This is the opposite of what I'm seeing in Bible college. Um, so I asked a leader about this. Um, a very prominent leader, you know, someone who was writing a lot of the textbooks. Uh, and I felt like this was, he was very, very kind. Um, and, and I brought this very scary question to him. And the justification that, that I was given was that these unrecognizable tongues that we were experiencing in the modern church were actually the tongues of angels, which were referenced in 1 Corinthians 13. And this is why we couldn't understand them. But even at the time, I had a difficult time accepting this explanation because throughout the Bible, every time an angel speaks, the listener understands what the angel is saying. Right. There's not an interpretation from right. somebody else when an angel, you know, when an angel came mm -hmm. to Mary, Mary knew what the angel was saying. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but the, the thing was, even though I didn't understand it, I, I accepted this, this as truth because a leader of the church told me that's what I was taught, right? So right. I buried that question and I buried it deep. And um, I felt truly that I had found the answer, but now I just needed to pray for the wisdom to understand the answer. That's something we were taught quite frequently, right? You can yes. have truth without wisdom. Yes, um, you said it. And I like had a minute. I was like, oh man, I haven't heard that phrase in so long that it's like, this right. is the truth. And you just have to pray that God opens your heart to accepting and giving you wisdom right. to handle the truth. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, that's what I believed fervently. And so I, I just, I, I dug it down deep. Um, yeah. But on this issue of tongues, I'd actually love to go back to the father of Pentecostalism, Charles Parham. Um, he also believed that tongues had to be real languages. So in that same article from the Hawaiian Gazette that I started reading earlier, Parham goes on to say this about speaking in tongues and referencing his newly founded Bethel school. He says, we are expecting thousands of ministers, evangelists, and other people from all parts of the United States who desire to become missionaries to attend. There is no doubt that at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues if they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language. And notice how he explicitly uses the phrasing from Acts 1 here. And then he goes on and he says, the students of Bethel College do not need to study the old way to learn languages. They have them conferred on them miraculously. Different ones have already been able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt the various dialects of the people of India and even the language of the people of Africa. And I, I use people here, but again, 
Parham chooses to use a racial slur. Uh, I, I know this is a really tough pill to swallow and it was really tough for me. So I'm gonna read another excerpt. This is also from 1901. This is from an interview with the Kansas City Star. This is actually the first interview that we know about after the Pentecostal movement begins. And here Charles Parham is speaking directly about himself. He says, I can speak in three, four, or five languages, but I don't understand scarcely any one of them. A couple of weeks ago, my sister-in-law was given the power and she spoke in Turkish and French in church, but she did not exactly understand what she was saying. She only had a vague disconnected idea of it. One more story here. Um, Agnes Oseman was the first person to speak in tongues. It was on uh, New Year's day of 1901 under the direction of Charles Parham. She spoke in tongues before he did. And it's written that when Agnes began to speak in tongues, she did this for three days straight. She was not able to speak in English. She could only speak and write in what Parham fervently believed was Chinese. And he believed it so fervently that he actually preserved some of her writing during these three days and sent it to someone who spoke Chinese to confirm this. You know, needless to say, it, it was not Chinese, um, but that, that paper is preserved. Uh, and this is all um, stuff that, that we, we can read about. So all of this to say, it's very clear that even the founder of Pentecostalism not only believed at the, at the time that tongues was a new thing, but he understood that biblically speaking, tongues had to be actual languages. Very different from what we were taught. That's very interesting um, because the UPC didn't form until, was it 1945, 1946? 1945 was the merger between the PCI and the PAJC, yeah. Which formed the UPCI. And so it's in, in between all those years, um, which actually is not very many years, uh, sometimes I talk about like when it was formed and all these things and it feels like forever ago and I'm like, man, it, it was actually a little recent. Um, but mm -hmm. so during that time, of Charles Parham and then the merger of the two organizations to become the UPCI. I wonder where their disconnect was of tongues and how the explanation, because um, the, the first explanation seems a little, you know, confusing. And so it, it you know, it doesn't seem like um, an or not an organization, but that Pentecostalism was founded on exact truth and exact facts it was a couple of people talking about a couple of different things that maybe made sense. Maybe she was speaking Chinese, but it turned out it's not Chinese, but it's definitely a language. And mm. now all this, all these years later, it's something totally different than what they were even trying to do, which still seemed a little messy. Right. Yeah. I mean, this story is told throughout history, right? Not just in the church. Like This is kind of how movements form. They start from these disparate little, you know, grassroots uh, movements, and then they sort of merge as they as they grow. Um, and this is really, I think, a reminder of the importance of studying context. So hopefully it's not really contested in the church that understanding the writers of the Bible and their daily lives and their concerns and what mattered to them helps us really understand how the passages in front of us were written and who they were written for. And that gives us better empathy and understanding and how to apply that to our daily lives, right? So a good example of this is the, the passage that it rains on the just and the unjust. And if we just read this literally in our, in our modern context, 
it's it's kind of a pain to get stuck in the rain these days. It's not, you know, we don't look at rain and say, uh, you know, it, it's a pleasant thing to be rained on. But once you understand that we're talking about an early agricultural society, you realize that rain is crucial to life, right? So rather than being a passage that's about how bad things happen to everyone, this becomes a pretty beautiful story and a reminder that love and nourishment and growth are freely given to all of us. So if we recognize that studying the original church leaders and what they meant and who they were impacts our understanding, then we also have to recognize that understanding the worldviews and the opinions of later church leaders has just as much of, a, of an impact on what we're taught and how we're taught it, right? So it's, I think Absolutely. about this like, like as, as human beings, we are playing this very long game of telephone the game that we would play at you know kids parties and at school and on the playground right you whisper something to me i whisper something to the next person and we go down the line and like we've all learned in this game of telephone the longer that line becomes the more twisted the message gets this yes. is just part of being a human right? right the good news is context seeking context is how we skip the line it's how we get back to the original intention of the author so Contact is everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was tongues. Uh, I had a difficult time with it, but like I said, I buried it. Um, and then by the end of the first semester, I had more questions than I had come in with, and I had even fewer answers. And worse, now I was starting to have growing concerns about holiness standards, and even worse, the Acts 238 plan of salvation. And these were scary things to think about, right? These are oh, not yeah. the things that, that you bring to a leader and, and say, hey, I, I, I'm questioning this. That's kind of a, like, like heresy, right? So right. what did I do? I gaslit myself. I, I resorted to the stories that I was taught. Um, is this the influence of the enemy? Is this the devil trying to trick me, right? I'm inherently evil, so this might be me slipping into that. Um, it got really dark there. Uh, and you're still this, very young at this point. Oh, I was 18. Yeah. Yeah, you're a kid. Um, still yeah. a kid with these questions and these concerns that in a, in a place where you feel like answers are supposed to be there um, with all of these really um, intelligent people within the organization who are writing the books, who are writing, you know, everything. And then you're supposed to be in a spot where they can help you and you should be able to understand but now you've got more questions than you did before you know that must be mm. a really frustrating and terrifying experience to go through yeah very very much so um yeah i mean i i can break down some of the some of the questions i had at this point um yeah please do so standards i mean we could we could be here all day if we went through all of them <laughs> but um at at 18, I think th the two that I was really having a hard time with were jewelry and gendered clothing. So um, jewelry, right? Like in the, the oneness Pentecostal world, jewelry is not allowed. But the way that this was enforced, like most rules, gave a much higher burden to women than men, right? So the passage that supported this belief was 1 Timothy 2, um, you know, gold, pearls, and costly array are the things that we should avoid. Okay, gold, pearls, costly array, that makes sense. But 
I didn't understand why jewelry and costly array applied to women's necklaces and bracelets, but not the very expensive silk ties that I saw every man wearing that served no functional purpose. They were entirely decorative, right? That That is jewelry. I didn't get why it didn't apply to the Louis Vuitton bags that I saw everywhere. I didn't get why it didn't apply to the very expensive watches or cars. Um, it seemed to be arbitrary and I couldn't find an answer to that, but I, I could look past it. Um, and the gendered clothing thing, that was really tough for me. Um, so this comes from Deuteronomy 22 uh, verse five, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to a man and neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are an abomination. Um, this is taken very seriously in oneness Pentecostalism, uh, yes. very seriously. But the more I thought about this and studied this, the more I realized that this has to be culturally contextual because every culture throughout history has a different expression of what people wear, right? If you put me next to someone who is my age, my gender from, let's say, the, the Roman Empire, we're going to dress very differently. That's just the right. fact. And this was actually, um, this point was made in the book, Practical Holiness, written by David Bernard, which was also required reading. Um, and it, in that book, he recognizes that it would be okay for a Scottish man to wear a kilt, but he says it would be an abomination for an American man to wear the same kilt. So we're, we're saying that in order to understand how scripture in, in, impacts us, we must first understand the culture in which we live. And I, I, I agree with this point. This is a great point. But the problem with this point is that in our culture, women's pants are a thing and they have been a thing for a long time. And I know that the church agreed with this point because I knew that it would be a problem for me to wear pants that were designed and marketed toward women. Right. So, and I grew up, you know, in the emo music phase and I wanted to <laughs> wear women's pants in the mid 2000s. And I had talked to my pastor about that. Um, so I, I knew that, that, that there was an understanding of cultural relevance. And I didn't understand how that wasn't brought into how this, this standard was portrayed. So this is one that I actually did ask a leader about because I felt comfortable. Um, and I felt comfortable largely because I wasn't a woman. Um, and so this really didn't apply to me that much, right? Um, but it felt wrong. And the explanation I was given for this one was uh, Leviticus 16, which is a passage about the day of the day of atonement um, in the Old Testament. And, you know, in this passage, God is giving very, very specific guidance on what priests should wear when they enter into the tabernacle. I think breeches are the word, but they put on like a very specific type of a pant. But like the issue with, with that is, that, that passage only applied to a small handful of people who were the elite of their society, right? This, this was just about what the priest wore when they entered into a specific room. Um, to the layperson, to the majority of people, even at that time, this passage had no relevance. So I had a tough time with that. And then, you know, the more I studied, the more I realized that if, if we're gonna take any one scripture and say that this is literal, we have to take the entire passage literally. So right. the problem can't with that is choose. you can't, right? And the problem with that is in Deuteronomy 22, where we read in verse five about, you know, 
not wearing what pertaineth to another gender. In that exact same passage, we read that thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts as of wool and linen together. And no one is saying that wearing a tri-blend t-shirt is a sin. So I, I really was having a difficult time. And then to make matters much, much worse, I kept studying Acts 2.38 and that, um, that sent me down an entire rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, and can I say, I really appreciate the fact that you're giving the scriptural references to the things that you were being taught and the things that you were studying. Cause like myself, for example, was not one who's like, okay, I'm going to take this verse and, and look into it and figure it out. I was just sort of like, okay, whatever you say. Um, and, and even now I can't quote and I can't remember. And I, you know, have a hard time with the scripture part of, of telling people, you know, this is the issues that I had within the organization. So I really appreciate you bringing that with your story. Um, yeah, thank you. I, uh, I, know I, mean, it's, I know it's a tough thing to even, you know, some people don't even want to talk about <laughs> the scriptures that, that sent them, you know, down these spirals and into these dark places. Um, yeah, and, I mean, I, I mentioned them because I, I, I didn't, I didn't leave out of spite, right? Like I, I truly believed that I was taught the truth and I was actively seeking the answers to my questions, right? I believed that they were there. And so I, I studied and I, and I studied. Yeah. So um, yeah. how long were you at Bible college for? So I was only there for actually one semester because at the end of the semester, I had three offers from uh, pretty prominent UPCI churches to join full-time ministry. Okay. And, you know, the, if, if, the, if God's plan was to go to Bible college as a way to start working in full-time ministry, then this, it seemed like God's plan was working. Right. Even in the middle of all of your questions and internal struggle that you were facing. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and at the time, you know, by the time I received those offers, I really felt more and more like we were using the Bible to justify our own beliefs, to you know justify the beliefs that we had all inherited because everyone there was second or third generation, the majority of people at least. Um, so we were kind of you know learning how to refute other beliefs rather than studying these very beautiful ancient texts in order to find a deeper meaning in our own lives. Um, so the narrative, the narrative was very controlled. Um, and the goal, the goal was conformity of thought. Um, the, the actual definition of indoctrination is the process of teaching a person or a group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. And that word uncritically is so important here. Because even with all the doubt that I had, I still believed that I was the problem. And that's so tough. I mean, from such a young age, you have had these concerns and these internal struggles and things like that and felt like you were to blame for the things that you were experiencing. Um, yeah. And so for that to, to carry over into Bible college, a place where you know, in my mind, that's where you go to figure it all out and you get the confirmation and you get the full understanding. Um, but instead you're, you're, you still have more questions and more of a struggle. Um, yeah. 
when you got these offers from these three places, was it an easy decision um, to pick one? Were you, you know, kind of back and forth? How was that? Yeah, um, it, it, it was not. Um, it, it was actually kind of a weird experience. Um, I had been freelancing as a designer for one church and they reached out to make me an offer. And I didn't really tell anyone. And then very quickly I, I received two additional offers. It was kind of like a weird word of mouth thing. Um, so I started talking to people about these three churches because I'd, I'd never been to any of these three churches and they were scattered around the country. And once I started talking to people, both friends at Bible college and leaders, that's when I started hearing some of the skeletons, right? Like once I said, this church has reached out, that's when you hear, oh, this happened and this happened at that church. Um, one of the churches even wanted me to be quiet about the offer because it was a it was a music ministry position and they already had a full-time employee in that position and they didn't want to tell that employee that I was being hired. They wanted me to move there and study under that person before they canned them. Um, so it, it, it was it was a weird time. Yeah, that sounds really overwhelming. Um, what 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 should be a really exciting experience sounds less than um, less than that. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if, if, if going to Bible college sort of dug the hole, like dug the grave for my acceptance of oneness Pentecostal theology, working at a Pentecostal church drove the nails into the coffin. Mm -hmm.